Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And today we're doing a classic, a classical classic, even. Yeah. One of <laughs> it's one of the most sensationalized archaeological stories of its time, possibly all time. Yeah. Uh, a real character study Oof. and a whole pile of problems to boot. Today we're talking Heinrich Schliemann. And Sophia Schliemann and the so-called discovery of Troy. Yeah. So I think we should probably start by discussing what and where Troy was and why people were just itching to find it in the 1800s. Arma virumque keno Troyae qui primus ab oris. What? That was the first line of the Aeneid, um, the epic poem written by Virgil sometime around 29 BCE. You know it. I know it. We, we know love it. it. The the poem tells the story of Aeneas, who um, was a Trojan, who was a, supposedly the ancestor of all Romans. And so he fled the sacked city, which the Iliad drops off there mm -hmm. at, at the end. And he was kind of an NPC in the other epic poem about the Trojan War, the Iliad. By, by Homer. I, well, it's a Homeric epic. I just felt like I should make it very obvious. The Iliad is by Homer. The Aeneid. Oh, but but Homer is by like, isn't necessarily a person. It's by Homer. Yeah. Yeah. And so um I didn't quote the first line of the Iliad because I didn't read it. So I mean I read it in translation. Um so I can't come up with that first line straight off the dome. So here we are. Okay. Now the Homeric epics epics of the Iliad and the Odyssey, Andra Moyana Musa, have been a huge no, part what? of the <laughs> I don't speak Greek. Oh, that's, um, it's, tell me about the man, Omuse. Oh. The first line is Andra. Andra you know, I knew like, Andra yeah. meant man. Like so, okay, Andrew. so here, fun aside, up until last year, the year before last, everybody who's ever translated the Odyssey was a man. And mm -hmm. then, and so the first line is always to be like, oh, tell me about this, like, tell me about this, this man who's like, so like multifaceted and so because it's it's like many turning is the is many the, turning okay is the like is the, the next epithet? line after that yeah it, well yeah so it's always been translated as sort of like wily and like um and then when emily wilson translated it two years ago she's the first woman to have ever uh translated it and there's a really cool i think it was on vox i'll put it in the show notes about um what happened like what like having the gendered perspective mm -hmm. because um Odysseus has been sort of lauded as this like foxy great, like cunning like, no, well like this sort of like ubermensch kind of guy yeah he could but do he's it all. actually like not great mm. and the the way she describes him is complicated oh so it it's 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 really interesting and so i love the odyssey in greek and in English. And so I really like her take on it because cool. it's, it's a completely different, it's a completely different story using the same source material of this, this in translation. But back to me talking about back to life, back to the Odyssey. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Do you need a minute? I gotcha. <laughs> that was great. Okay. Whew. So, 
The Homeric epics of the Iliad and the Odyssey have been a huge part of the Western literary canon for millennia. In fact, they were pretty instrumental in dictating who and what was even Western. Um, this was illustrated by both Virgil's cool jingoistic reboot as a spiritual thumbs up to the Roman Empire that had just kicked off at the time mm, he was writing. I've heard of um, it. Yeah. And then also the wide open arms with which with which rich white people in Europe embraced it all in the era of neoclassicalism. Mm. So tell me about that. Yeah. So I'm not going to tell you a lot about it, but neoclassicalism <laughs> is a lot of the reason why all of the buildings in Washington, D.C. look the way they do. They got and columns. It, it came about in the mid 18th century CE mm -hmm. uh, around the same time as the Enlightenment. Uh, so when we were thinking for thinking's sake. Uh -huh. um, and if that sounds familiar to our listeners, it could be because we have discussed the beginnings of archaeology before. And so there is this. this so with the um, increase in in um, attention being paid to the classics again and being like, oh, this is nice. This is great. I like this. And then also with the um, ever reaching spread of empires and suddenly it became like way easier to go see all these places that you now feel that you own in some way uh people wanted to like start finding like they wanted to see these like mysterious and exotic places that they felt were completely frozen in time this is like a key hallmark of orientalism this sort of timelessness mm -hmm. and so and it put them in the mind of these these ancient lost uh, civilizations and empires and so they wanted to find these glorious places and so a lot of them that uh, we've talked about already those are places mentioned in the bible but troy is one of the big ones from the other major religion of the time being imperialism mm -hmm. <laughs> And so to set the geographic scene, we are in modern day Turkey, which is in, which is in a region called, when we talk about antiquity, and I think some people still today, um, Anatolia, yeah. which comes from the Greek word Anatole, which means sunrise. Oh, okay. The, so okay. the east. Yeah. So this was the Greek east. The, the, the other land of the rising sun. Yes. Not Japan. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Correct. We are not in Japan. Nope. That is correct. So modern day Turkey, about six and a half kilometers from the Aegean Sea. So this is um, it's about midway between the Aegean Sea and the Dardanelles Strait. And this is formerly known as the Hellespont. Yeah. Um, and yeah. that's where Herodotus talks about the Persians building a bridge over it. Mm. And there's a lot of vocabulary around bridges. In that. Okay, but <laughs> so this was <laughs> another glimpse into my classical education. Huh. <laughs> so this was um, a place that was discussed by rake poet and chief problematic dude Lord Byron. Mm. Um, so he famously swam across the Hellespont in in eighteen ten as like a. I did that. It's like something that he would have a photo of on his Tinder on profile. On his Tinder, yeah, next, yeah. Also next to a tiger. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Which Calypso has thoughts about. And he wrote about it in his poem, Don Juan. Yeah, it's, it's spelled Don Juan, but it is supposed to be pronounced Don Juan. Because he's he's like a yokel kind yeah. of thing, is the idea. Yeah. But so that's something. Yep. It's, so <laughs> it's just like, you know, you can really picture poets in their floppy cravats and floppy hair, just sort of getting googly eyed over over well, the classics. And it's, so it's not it's not totally dissimilar to the approach of people like millennials who are of a certain like educational level and social status that decide that they're going to like go be mindful and they go like on like an eat, pray, love kind of thing. Yeah, they go Eastern, to Bali Eastern and they religion go to like quest. an ashram and they get like, yeah. so like it's not dissimilar to that yeah, when they're like similar making, pattern. Yeah. Yeah. And so like this is his poetry, whereas that would be like a blog. Yeah. Oh God, Lord Byron was a blogger. Oh no, he was a bit of a blogger. Okay, so we are in we're in Turkey. We're modern in modern day modern day Turkey, previously yes. Anatolia. Yes, let's keep going. 
All right. So studies mm. have revealed that the 100-foot-high mound that is today called Hisarlik contains not just one, but nine Troys. <laughs> Hi, I'm Troy. These are my friends, Troy and Troy. <laughs> and six more Troys. Well, there were two Troys the year ahead of me in high school, um, each built over the ruins of the one before. Still works. Yeah. Um, today, oh, archaeologists <laughs> <laughs> consider Troy 6, <laughs> the reboot, uh, the sixth counting from the bottom up. So, Troy so Keodrift. As, as if you were to look at the layers, like mm-hmm. the, the strata. Um, Troy 1's the, on the bottom, right? The oldest one is Troy 1. Right. Five after that is Troy, Troy six. 6. Right. Is the likeliest candidate for Homer's Troy. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a sign. Yeah. Homer's Troy. Homer, sweet Homer's Troy. There we go. Um, <laughs> I would like that as a cross stitch, please. Okay. I'll do that after I finish my Emily Dickinson poem. Okay. The city dates from around 1700 to 20 to 1250 BCE, and its citizens lived in dynamic times. <laughs> Woo! Um, so to the east of them was the waning Hittite Empire, which we'll talk about sometime because mm-hmm. what, they're very metal. Mm-hmm. Um, and to their west was the mighty Mycenaean Greeks. Mm-hmm. Um, so Troy itself, uh, which Ilion... Yeah, it's, is what the Greeks caught it at. That, well, that's why the Iliad is the story of Ilion. Mm-hmm. Um, Ilion in the middle of Ilium. Troy itself occupied a strategic location commanding the entrance to what is now the Dardanelles. Whoever held Troy could control the traffic along that busy commercial route. Did you forget how you said route? I just got I got in my head. Route. Um, a fact that would not have escaped the attention of their Greek rivals. Mm-hmm. Homer's depiction of Troy, though, revolves around passion, not politics. It begins with the love affair between the Trojan prince, Paris, and Helen, the wife of the Spartan king Menelaus, brother to powerful Agamemnon, leader of the Greek forces. National Geographic says that Paris and Helen eloped in Troy. <laughs> but arguably what happened was... Helen was kidnapped by Paris and taken to Troy after having also been kidnapped by Menelaus. She had a tough time. She, yep. Maybe. That's, yep. She was just too pretty. Mm. Um, so this, this, Happens. um, yeah, this affront to the King of Sparta, um, triggers war between the nations. So Sparta, and Troy, Sparta and Ilion go to war, and then all of Sparta's, um, what are they called? Friends. Allies. There we go. All of, <laughs> all, I'm very sleepy. All of Sparta's allies join in, and it becomes a decade-long siege that the Greeks bring to a terrible end with the famous ruse of the wooden horse. Remember the Trojan horse? They come mm-hmm. in, and they're like, ah, and then they come out, and then they murder everyone. Yeah, well, we'll get to that. Spoiler. (laughs) Spoilers for the end of the Trojan War. Um, In reality, the motives for such a war were probably more pragmatic. Whether or not there was a Helen so beautiful that her face could launch a thousand ships, the commercial and strategic value of Troy made it a desirable target for any of its neighbors. The citizens of Troy had anticipated outside threats. They had built a defensive wall and even dug trenches to stall war chariots, the assault vehicles of the ancient world. Um, trouble seems to have peaked around 1250 BCE when uh, the archaeological re- record shows signs of an attack and a devastating fire. But we cannot tell who the assailants were or if the destruction was caused by a single action or a series of onslaughts over time. Uh, where the certainties of archaeology fade, we can only turn to ancient poetry for an account of the fall of Troy. And it's here that we find the clever way that the Greeks ultimately win the war and turned a proud, impregnable city into smoking ruins. So, Odysseus (laughs) and his friend Emphasis. Oh, Odyssea 
of Odyssey fame, steps in with perhaps the most famous ruse de guerre in history. <laughs> you did great. <laughs> the most famous ruse de guerre in history. He commands the Greek soldiers to construct a huge hollow wooden horse, which hides a small band of brave warriors. The Greek army fakes a retreat, sailing to a nearby island, and leaves the wooden horse as a on the beach as an offering. Odysseus' plan now hinges on the Trojan taking the gift within Troy's walls, because you got to honor a gift to the gods. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, got to take this to the temple. Once inside, the hidden soldiers crawled out at night, overpowered any guards, and opened the gates. The Greek army, having returned under cover of darkness, will storm the city. And that, in the Odyssey at least, is exactly what happens. Troy is sacked and burned, the Greeks are victorious, and a lot of other epic poetry happens. Um, Mind you, at the end of 10 years yep, of seizing, seizing a, like, not huge place. Um, so, but you can see why this might be the kind of story that would capture the imagination of a European public who had gained political or imperial access to the lands where all these romantic stories took place. Because remember, Ilion, Troy, was in the east. Mm-hmm. It was in Anatolia. So it was mm-hmm. at a place called Sunrise. Uh, which makes it sound like a subdivision. But, I was just going to say, it sounds uh, like a gated community. Yeah. A witch? Yeah. It, it absolutely. Yeah. Oh, it totally was a gated yeah. community. Yeah. So you have so you have um, a perceived slight done by another place. Mm-hmm. And then you have a, a loosely aligned group of Europeans come in, besiege it, yeah. and like wear, wear it down, and then claim victory over it. And, and then, then exploit it. it. Yeah. So that's what they took from the Iliad and the Odyssey. And also sort of these these like illustrations of what masculinity and heroism look like. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they took all the pillagey parts and they left all the gay stuff in terms of what they thought was great yeah, it's about very it. very selective. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, but yeah. one such European was our boy, your boy and mine, hmm. I don't Heinrich, want him. Heinrich Schliemann. Yeah. So okay. Anna, mm. Anna, you had a tough week with, with Heinrich. Well, the thing is, I read a, an extremely good book about, book. <laughs> the thing is, I read a book. Um, it's an extremely good book about an extremely frustrating person. And so I tried very, very hard multiple times not to throw this book across the room. But let's get into it and, and you'll see why I had such trouble. So and then at ha- the end, you put the book inside a larger wooden book with a bunch I had of other books. Taken care of by top men. Or was it a Trojan you, horse book? It was a joke. Trojan horse reference. Okay. And then you'd send it back to the library. It would have been better if I was reading it on my computer and then I got a Trojan horse virus. Yeah, that definitely would have been better. I, I like I like that happening. I mean, I don't want to it. all of our files. Yep. Okay. Go on. Tell me about Heine. Herr Schliemann. Yeah. <laughs> Heinrich Schliemann was born in Nubikov in Mecklenburg-Schwerin, which at the time was part of the German Confederation and now is part of just regular old Germany, in 1822. His father, Ernst Schliemann, was a Lutheran minister with fraudulent tendencies. He was what? kicked out. Of, he was kicked out of his church for embezzling funds to support a mistress when Heinrich was in his early teens. Um, wow! And so he came by it honest. Mm-hmm. His mother died early on in Heinrich's life, and his father then sent Heinrich to live with his uncle. When he was eleven years old, when Heinrich was eleven years old, his father paid for him to enroll in the gymnasium at Neustrelitz. So Heinrich's interest in history was initially encouraged. Uh, and, and like a gymnasium, that's like, it's, it's a not school. a gymnasium. It's not it's like a school. orange yeah. theory. Yeah. yeah. No, no, it's, no. Yeah. Okay. But, but his core strength at the end, my God. Ugh. Heinrich's interest in history was initially encouraged by his father, who had schooled him in the tales of the Iliad and the Odyssey and had given him a copy of Ludwig Jerer's Illustrated History of the World for Christmas in 1829. Schliemann later claimed that at the age of seven, he had declared that he would one day excavate the city of Troy. This probably didn't happen. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Seven-year-olds say a lot of stuff. So one thing I will say in Schliemann's favor 
um, listeners may have been able to tell already that I have a certain opinion about Heinrich Schliemann, but I will say he was brilliant with languages. So he ended up being able to read and speak about 15 different languages, including French, Arabic, Dutch, Spanish, Portuguese, Greek, and Latin. And so each time he learned a new language, he would completely immerse himself in it, writing in that language in his diaries, taking classes, writing essays in those languages, all of which indicate a real love of language and also a tenacity bordering on mania that sort of speaks to his delusional personality. Schliemann went to California in early 1851, so he was in his early 30s, and started, or actually late 20s, and started a bank in Sacramento buying and reselling over a million dollars worth of gold dust in just six months. When the local Rothschild agent complained about short-weight consignments, meaning he was selling gold and that not turning over as much gold as he said he would be, um, he, he left California, pretending it was because of illness. But it was fraud. Bad case of, bad case of the fraud. Yep. Got fraud in my bones. Oh no. Got that fraud bone. While he was there in California, it became the 31st state in our union in September of 1850. And Schliemann acquired United States citizen, citizenship. While this story was propounded in Schliemann's autobiography of 1881, later historical accounts state clearly that instead Schliemann was in St. Petersburg, Russia that day and in actual fact obtained his American citizenship only in 1869. So there's going to be a lot of this. He says something in his diaries or in his publication and then a historian comes in and goes, "Mm, not what happened. According to his memoirs, before arriving in California, he dined in Washington, D.C. with President Millard Fillmore and his family. But according to historian Eric Klein, he probably actually didn't attend, but simply read about it in the papers. What, that Fillmore ate dinner? That he uh, entertained some notable people in D.C. Oh, okay. at dinner. <laughs> President <laughs> eats dinner! Millions shocked. Schliemann also published what he said was an eyewitness account of the San Francisco fire of 1851, which he said was in June, although it actually took place in May. This isn't a simple error, though. He didn't just write May instead of June, or June instead of May, rather. The June entry in his diary is preceded by multiple entries for May, and the page with his account of the fire was glued into his diary, not part of the original binding. And so this is a, a paragraph from so that book. So he scammed himself? He was a revisionist of his own history, very much. Um, So this is just the recurring pattern that he just had no problem embellishing his own stories, changing dates, changing, conflating multiple stories. It's wild. This is so this is from the book that I didn't throw across the room to my own credit. It's called Schliemann of Troy, Treasure and Deceit. It's by David Trail. So, quote, All of the essential facts in Schliemann's narrative, this is about the fire, occur in the Sacramento Daily Union, the newspaper, reports of May 6th and 7th. It seems clear that Schliemann based his diary account on this source, imaginatively adapting it to a vivid first-person narrative. The wrong dating of the event is probably because the easiest place for him to stick in an extra page in his diary was after May 14th. So he was just like, June, this happened. Yeah. So this is a pretty good example of how Schliemann treated facts throughout the rest of his life and his writings. He had no problem combining events, altering details, and just plain making stuff up in service of a good story. Schliemann made a bunch of shady business deals, got married, had some children, treated his first wife quite poorly, and eventually divorced her. But what carries our story along here is that those business deals eventually made him wealthy enough that he could bop around the Mediterranean and fulfill his desires to see all the places related to the classical literature he loved so much. Schliemann was convinced that Troy was a real place, despite the prevailing opinion of the time that it was a legend. Which brings us to our next segment. Schliemann finds Troy and makes up a bunch of stuff about it. But first, some ads! It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Cultura when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. 
Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. And we're back with Schliemann. So. Schliemann, who retired at the age of 36. So he definitely is that guy on Tinder in the Bay Area who's like, I'm working 60 hours a week so that I work zero when I'm 60. Like that. Mm. They're like, "Mm." Mm -hmm. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. so Schliemann, this guy. According to a widely published legend, the finder of the true side of Troy was Heinrich Schliemann, adventurer, speaker of 15 languages, world traveler and gifted amateur archaeologist. Mm. Um, in his memoirs and books, Schliemann claimed that when he was eight, his father took him on his knee and told him the story of the Iliad, the forbidden love between Helen, wife of the king of Sparta, and Paris, son of Priam of Troy, and how their elopement resulted in a war that destroyed a late Bronze Age civilization. The reality, according to David Trail's 1995 biography, which Anna loved, Schliemann mm. of Troy, Treasure and Deceit, um, and bolstered by Susan Hoyk Allen's 1999 work, Finding the Walls of Troy, Frank Calvert and Heinrich Schliemann, is that most of this is romanticized baloney, manufactured by Schliemann for the sake of his own e- image, ego, and public persona. So, Schliemann was a brilliant, gregarious, enormously talented, and re- extremely relentless con man, um, who just happened to make a big impact, for better or worse, probably worse, mostly worse, on archaeology. His focused interest on the sites and events of the Iliad created widespread belief in their physical reality, and in so doing, made many people search for the real pieces of the world's ancient writings. It could be argued that he was among the earliest and most successful of public archaeologists. It could be argued, but we're not arguing that. We are not. No, we are not arguing that. But you could, but we wouldn't. Uh, Schliemann was a world traveler. He visited the Netherlands, the Russia, England, France, Mexico, <laughs> America, Greece, Egypt, Italy, India, Singapore, Hong Kong, China, Japan, all before he was 45. Goals. <sighs> he took trips to ancient monuments, stopped at universities to take classes and attend lectures in comparative le- literature and language, wrote thousands of pages of diaries and travelogues, and made friends and enemies all over the world. As we mentioned before, he could afford this travel because of his business acumen or his penchant of penchant for fraud. Probably a bit of both. There is no doubt that before that, Schliemann had been interested in archaeology, particularly the history of the Trojan War, but it had always been subsidiary to his interest in languages and literature. But in June of 1868, Schliemann spent three days at the excavations at Pompeii, directed by the archaeologist Giuseppe Fiorelli, and this seems to be where his archaeological career really took off. For the record, Giuseppe Fiorelli, for the time, was actually a really good archaeologist. He was very careful. He took extensive records, and yeah, you mean he, he seemed- didn't dig a hole and go, "I found it." The king. Yeah, like he was one of the first to do that, <laughs> or to not do the other thing, you know. Yeah. yeah. The next month, he visited Mount Etnos, considered then the site of the Palace of Is- Odysseus, and there Schliemann dug his first excavation pit. Maybe. In that pit, or perhaps purchased locally, Schliemann obtained either five or 20 small vases containing cremated remains. The fuzziness is a deliberate obfuscation on Schliemann's part, definitely not the first nor the last time that Schliemann would fudge the details in his diaries or their published form. Like, can you imagine? So he's so he's like, what? What are those? Like the remains of like the suitors? Yeah, um, or just straight up Odysseus? Be like, yeah, it was supposed to be. Yeah, it was supposed to be Odysseus and his and like Telemachus. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Found him, Papa Odysseus. Mm. Oh, and the and the dog Argos. Yeah. At the time that Schliemann's interest was stirred by archaeology and Homer, there were three candidates for the location of Troy. The popular choice of the day was Bunarbashi. Um, okay. 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> accompanying Acropolis of Bali Dag. Uh, a site called Hisarlik was favored by the ancient writers and a small minority of scholars. And Al- okay, I like that. <laughs> favored the by the writers. ancient writers. <laughs> and a couple, a few, a few scholars. And Alexandria Tro- Troas, since determined to be too recent to be Homeric Troy, was a distant third. Schliemann was unaware of Hisarlik until at the end of the summer he visited the archaeologist Frank Calvert. Calvert, a member of the British diplomatic corps in Turkey and a part-time archaeologist, was among the decided minority among scholars. He believed that Hisarlik was the site of Homeric Troy. Yeah, so there's Schliemann. a lot of people who, who think that Calvert should get the credit for discovering Troy, but Schliemann kind of swooped in and was like, ooh, Troy. Yeah, yeah like, like Calvert's like working there and he's like, yeah. oh, I'm just, I'm just poking around doing some survey. Oh, you know, and he's like, oh. He's not from Minnesota. He's British. <laughs> This was my my this okay. was my voice for like a nice person. Yeah, okay. <laughs> just doing just doing what he's told. Schliemann refer- returned to Paris in the fall of 1868 and spent six months becoming an expert on Troy and Mycenae, writing a book of his recent travels, which he embellished profusely. <laughs> Makes sense. And writing numerous letters to Calvert, asking him where he thought the best place to dig might be, what sort of equipment he might need <laughs> to excavate at Sarlacc. Yeah, he's really just kind of like he's scooching like, so on you, in there. So what you doing? What do you think? Were you thinking this? Or were you thinking this? I was thinking shovels. What about you? In 1870, Schliemann began excavations at Hisarlik under the permit Frank Calvert had obtained for him and with members of Calvert's crew. Also, he'd excavated there the year before without a permit. Yeah. <laughs> but never in any of Schliemann's writings did he ever admit that Calvert did anything more than agree with Schliemann's theories of the location of Homer's Troy, born that day when his father sat him on his knee. Mm-hmm. Thinking that Homeric Troy must be in the lowest level, Schliemann and his workers dug hastily through the upper levels, reaching fortifications that he took to be his target. Yeah, and... Um- Calvert really objected to Schliemann's methods, which were just like chonk, chonk, chonk until well, and, they find something. And also, like, let's take a moment to explain. This is a it's a tell site. Yep. It's so a layer it's, cake in a hill. Yeah. So it's so. So tells or tepes like these are sort of hill sites that are occupation mounds where over the millennia it's higher than the surrounding landscape because yeah. of just layers of occupation. occupation. Yeah. It's also a real rookie move that Schliemann thought that like, oh, if I dig to the bottom of it, that's obviously like where history starts here mm-hmm. because he lacked so, like he had such little understanding of like how any of this do that yeah. he was just like, oh yeah. And then it just like, Started. They sacked it and it like built up around it. Yep. So what did he find at the bottom of the hill? <laughs> well, he found, you know, sequentially, he found a lot of things. But the thing that he is most famous for finding happened in 1873 when he unearthed what is now called, or at least what was then called, Priam's treasure. So that's that's Paris's dad. Yes, Priam is father of Paris, who stole Helen. A cache of gold and other objects was found at Hisarlik on or around May 27th, 1873. Schliemann named it Priam's treasure. He later wrote that he had seen the gold glinting in the dirt and dismissed the workmen so that he and his new Greek wife, Sophia, could excavate it themselves. They removed it in her shawl. However, Schliemann's oft-repeated story of the treasures being carried away by Sophia in her shawl was untrue. Schliemann later admitted to fabricating it. At the time of the discovery, Sophia was, in fact, with her family in Athens following the death of her father. Sophia yeah, also, Sophia mm-hmm. was a child. Yeah, she was very, very she young. She was his child bride. I'm reading, it's, this is in German Wikipedia, so give me a second. Um, September 1869, Heiratet, uh, yeah. So she married Heinrich Schliemann in 1869. She was born in 1852. So she was 17 when he married her. And he was much older. He was in his 40s, I think. Yeah. And they had two children, Zwei Kinder, Andromache. And? Und Agamemnon. Yep. He named his kids Andromache and Agamemnon. He did that. So 
you may know or at least recognize Sophia Schliemann because she's famous for wearing, quote, the jewels of Helen for the public in in the famous photo that I'm sure many of our listeners have seen before. We will post it on our social media. So this is from Schliemann of Troy by David Trail. So I'm just going to read from it. This is quoting from Schliemann's own book, his own publication of the events of the excavation of Troy, which is titled Troy and Its Remains. Okay, so. In order to withdraw the treasure from the greed of my workmen and to save it for archaeology, I had to be most expeditious, and although it was not yet time for breakfast, I immediately had paidos called, which is like, break. While the men were eating and resting, I cut out the treasure, capital T treasure, with a large knife, which it was impossible to do without the very greatest exertion and the most fearful risk of my life, for the great fortification wall beneath which I had to dig threatened every moment to fall down upon me. But the sight of so many objects, every one of which is of inestimable value to archaeology, made me foolhardy, and I never thought of any danger. It would, however, have been impossible for me to have removed the treasure without the help of my dear wife, who stood by me ready to pack the things which I cut out in her shawl and to carry them away. So I'm going to read from a second section about what exactly he extracted. Uh, I found in one of the rooms of the house of Priam abutting onto this wall a copper container or utensil of the most remarkable shape about one meter long by a half a meter broad for two helmet-like bosses could be seen on it. There was also a bowl with a kind of large candlestick. This container was filled with silver and gold vases and cups, which I had to extract, conceal, and send away in such haste in order to withdraw them from the greed of my workers, that I neither know the number of the vessels, nor am I in a position to describe their shape. I will, however, give a most detailed description of them from Athens, if the objects arrive safely, and append a photograph of each piece of the treasure to the atlas to this work." This much, however, I can already say, namely that one of the cups is of very thick, solid gold, has two heavy handles, and is in the shape of a champagne glass with a rounded foot so that it can only be made to stand on its rim. That's entirely inaccurate. In this same vessel, I further found a number of flat pieces of silver, which resemble battle axes in shape and maybe the Homeric talents, so coins. Also a large quantity, I think more than two dozen, of spearheads, a key, many knives, etc. In the intense conflagration which destroyed Troy, many spearheads became soldered together on one side. The silver and even the gold vessels also bear the clearest marks of the frightful heat to which they were exposed." There are significant discrepancies between the early draft report of his find and a later draft, so between May 31st and June 17th. So, for instance, there's absolutely no mention of Sophia in the draft versions, where in the published version she plays a leading role, uh, but she wasn't even there, as we know now. Three plans and an illustration in Troy and its remains all clearly place it just outside the city wall, um, and then... An early draft places it inside the wall. And so here's sort of his, Schliemann's interpretation of everything that he found. As I found all the above objects packed together on the great divine wall, or next to it, or in it, or near it, or around it, or other prepositions, it seems certain that they lay in a wooden chest, such as those which are mentioned in the Iliad, as being in Priam's palace. This seems all the more certain as I found directly next to the objects a large copper key. Actually, he found that copper key about 200 yards away. Presumably, some member of Priam's family packed the treasure in the chest in great haste, carried it outside without having time to remove the key, was overcome on the wall by the hand of the enemy or by the fire, and had to abandon the chest, which was immediately buried six feet deep in the red ashes and debris of the nearby palace. So he is a brilliant storyteller because he's very good at at just making stuff up from from details. He's very good at fabricating, but it's just, it's really frustrating. Um, yeah. So he had uh, released a whole bunch of sort of publicity stuff when Priam's treasure was found, including that photo of Sophia wearing, quote, Helen's jewelry. But all this publicity over the treasure backfired when the Turkish government revoked Schliemann's permission to dig and sued him for a share of that gold. Collaborating with Frank Calvert, Schliemann smuggled the treasure out of Turkey. He defended his smuggling in Turkey as an attempt to protect the items from corrupt local officials. 
Priam's treasure. The Ottoman. It would be the Ottoman government. It should be, yeah. At this time? Mm-hmm. Okay. In the 1870s. Um, Priam's treasure today remains a subject of international dispute, also academic dispute, and dispute in general. Schliemann published Troja und seine Ruinen, Troy and its Ruins, in 1875, and began excavation of the treasury of Minius at Orchomenus, or Boeotia, in 1880. In 1876, he began digging at Mycenae. Upon dis- discovering the shaft graves at Mycenae with their skeletons and more regal gold, including the so-called Mask of Agamemnon, Schliemann cabled the king of Greece, as in like he sent him a telegram being like, look what I found. The results of those Mycenaean digs were published in 1878. And so he continued throughout his whole life to excavate where he thought from these ancient texts there should be ruins and remains and treasure and he always seemed to find what he was looking for based on his own writings so what do we do with all of this well i know what i mean we shake our fist Mm. so okay so the sort of like imperialist like white supremacist nonsense is alluring and is probably the reason why a lot of very like reputable and ethical and well-informed archaeologists got into it. Like my, my interest was piqued in this and the sort of this era, like what was happening in this, this era of, mm-hmm. of exploration and archaeology. Um, he really did ruin a lot of sites. Yeah. He, his methods were, he, he didn't excavate. He dug. Yeah. Yeah. And so he doesn't, so he kind of, did a lot of damage to um, the public view of archaeology and possibly um, not unwarranted damage to the view of Western archaeologists work in mm-hmm. uh, in sort of spaces mm. of the other yeah. uh, non-Western and, places. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, maybe one so, OK thing that he did was. He was sort of the first person, to, and we mentioned this a little bit, but he was sort of the first person to treat places that show up in ancient literature as possibly real places. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that is valuable. Sort of a double edged sword. Mm-hmm. Um, because something that, and this isn't anything I'm going to pin on him because uh, it was, it predated him and still continues, is by looking for. Troy or looking for so like looking for a biblical or a biblical city or no like what no no no, like stay with me here okay okay. by looking for um Priam's palace or looking for Agamemnon's palace you are looking for not just elite contexts you're looking for individuals and even today um there is a really pervasive issue with archaeological inquiry looking for only elites oh yeah and and so this is sort of what schleeman did was sort of taking it to the extreme of looking for like some characters in uh literature and, and, and finding these literary characters um because well the story claiming that he had found these literary characters and both sort of adding fuel to that fire of you can find literary characters and also damaging the possibility of of having sort of a fresh and unbiased look at what was happening. Because if you're looking at, if you look at the excavation, like if you look at the archaeological record in levels six and seven of Hisarlik, um, it's really interesting and it's really cool and it's compelling and looking at like archaeological narratives of destruction or like destruction level events and looking at uh, funerary contexts and looking at all these things is really fascinating. And if all you're looking for is evidence of these, and this is also part of that like enlightenment mentality of like the individual and sort of the genius and like individualism that you're looking for individuals in a context that doesn't necessarily dispose itself to the existence of individuals. Because Troy was a city. 
it yeah. wasn't just a place where these like three or four individuals lived in a vacuum in their palace. Yeah. There were exactly hundreds like it, of lives. Yeah. Like thousands over this period of time. And it was a city that was occupied after the, that, like that bronze age level with the, the destruction, destruction layer. Yeah. And so it's something that you're looking at when you, you think, when folks think about the, um, the Homeric epics as being like truly epic. Like it really is like, there's like a handful of like 25 people that are just kicking around. And it's just like half of it is like guys like boozing around and like broing out. And it's a small, it's a small number of people in a small place. And it's something that if you saw, if, if Schliemann were to find like sort of something that reinforced that narrative of like what probably was the case of if they were real people, it's just like a bunch of bros. <laughs> um, that maybe would have been a bit of a death knell for like, the the discipline because it's right. just like oh it's just a few guys like and oh, without all shame. that hype yeah so yeah. I guess in a way like it's a it's a good thing but it really is it's a shame that you know as our as our professor once said in one of the most memorable things he ever said in a class in fact most people weren't Ashurbanipal in Assyria <laughs> right. And it's just almost like, everyone, in fact. Yeah. Yeah. Only there were only two guys named Asher Benny Paul. Uh most but, people weren't Agamemnon. Yeah. And so why do we care so much about this one guy to the point that we're just gonna like make it up that we <laughs> like found his funeral mask when there's so much else? Like there's so much more to know. Yeah, and and thankfully. Most archaeology has advanced now to the point where people are interested in the everyday life and they are interested in just regular people and behavior. And also, I think it's very rare now that archaeology, well, I don't know, I, I'm speaking out of hope more than anything, but that archaeologists approach a project not looking to find something, right? Because if you go in looking to find the city of Troy and looking to find Priam's palace, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Like you're going to skew the evidence until you've satisfied that, you know, that quest. Whereas a much more responsible way to practice archaeology is to just excavate, see what you find, and then interpret it. I think we've covered examples of archaeology, certainly outside of past that golden age, where there's been confirmation bias at work. Yeah, for sure. And I can just... I can think of a few right now, but it's, so it's <laughs> something that and also if you have if you're dealing with something that with a place that exists in the historical or literary record where like you know that this is the city that is described in the Bible or in the Assyrian annals or something like you know what this place is and so how it's probably incredibly hard not to fall prey to the confirmation bias of like, oh, here's that thing that we read about. We found it. Yeah. Like, and even if it's not something that has huge ideological significance to a existing community. That's still um, problematic. It's yeah. It's still not a good form. Not great. Yeah. Well, Schliemann. There it is. Yeah. But we're going to keep our our book club going. What are we we telling people to read this week? This week, if you (laughs) want to experience what I felt, um, I would advise getting the paperback so that when you do throw it across the room, you won't dent any of your walls. You can read Schliemann of Troy, Treasure and Deceit by David Trail. It's a very, very good bibliography. It's extensively researched. The bibliography? What? Did I say bibliography? You you called it a bibliography. It's a biography. (laughs) You can read the biography of Schliemann called Schliemann of Troy, Treasure and Deceit by David Trail. It's a biography. It's not a bibliography, but it has a bibliography. A very good one. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay, we're done. Okay, that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you, as always, for listening. We will be back in your ears soon with new episodes on a shiny new spot on the Archaeology Podcast Network. Yeah. Thanks, APN. Um, and you can still find us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Google Play, and wherever else you get your pods. Yeah, and um, check out our new our new family members. Yeah, there the are some there are some great podcasts over there. Yeah, there's one about uh, archaeozoology or zooarchaeology. Either way, archaeology of animals. There's one about like culture and myths and legends and stuff. I don't know. I have to. I I, there, I have a, such a podcast list. I know. Ugh, they're all on my list. Same. But yeah. you can leave us, you can help us out by leaving reviews and stars at all those places where you can find us. If you find mm-hmm. us in other places, give us stars and reviews there. Maybe tell hey. us that yeah. you found us there. Tell us where you uh, find. Where are we? <laughs> and you can find us on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. And all of that is together on our website, thedirtpod.com. And if you want to ask us questions or have thoughts or just want to say hi, you can email us at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. And we put out extra bonus content for our Patreon subscribers. You can get access to bonus goodies like video content and other things um, for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. So you can hear all of the Awkward breaks for my dog to bark at me. Bark, bark. I got a ball. She's up my up ball up rolled there, away down there. Callie it's, was outside. It's just uh, what a great a time. Thing. Thank you for listening. We love you. you. Goodbye. Goodbye. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com members. Thanks again and have a great day.